One of the most common laments I hear from school leaders involves the lack of student engagement present in so many classrooms. But what drives engagement isn't activities, it's learning, deeper learning. But what is deeper learning? And how do we help teachers learn about it and implement it? I hope you're ready as we go deep into deeper learning on today's episode. Hello, colleagues, and welcome to the Assistant Principal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Frederick Buskey. We are all on a leadership journey. Every day we have a chance to grow. Every day we have a chance to help others grow. My goal and the goal of this podcast is to help you grow into being a strategic leader, a leader who puts people before purpose, who solves problems instead of treating symptoms, and who understands the difference between progress and action. Through this podcast, my daily email and virtual programs, I'm working to build a network of inspired and inspiring school leaders. Let's get started on today's adventure and this unique opportunity to learn to live and lead better. Dr. Sarah Fine is an educator and scholar working at the intersection of practice and research. She currently directs the San Diego Teacher Residency, hosted at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, and also teaches courses in educational leadership at the University of California, San Diego. Sarah has written for a wide range of publications, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Chalkbeat, Edweek, Edutopia, and Educational Leadership, as well as scholarly journals such as the Journal of Educational Change and the Harvard Educational Review. Her recent book, co-authored with Jal Mehta, is In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Transform the American High School. And in 2019, the book won the Grawmeyer Award in Education. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun one today. We always like to start with celebrations. So what are you celebrating today? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I just came about an hour ago. Um, I'm in San Diego, California. And as part of my job running a teacher residency program, I get to be in the classrooms of my pre-service. And in this case, because it's June, very close to becoming teachers of record uh, candidates. And so I just came this morning from um, the sort of final performance assessment of one of my humanities folks who's working in a middle school, sixth grade humanities classroom. I got to watch him teach a lesson that he had designed as kind of a culmination of our learning and he just killed it. He was amazing. It was student-centered and thoughtful and inclusive and critical. And um, I was like a proud mama in that moment. So that is definitely worth celebrating. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that one with us. And Sarah, is there a story that will help listeners understand why you're doing the work that you do? There are many. Um, I would say that, you know, all of us are grounded in our own histories and stories for sure. Um, the story I, I tend to root my career and my current work in actually is from the very beginning of my own career as a teacher 18 years ago. Um, I rolled into an urban charter school in DC knowing that I was interested in teaching and having had the tiniest little toe dip in college. 
but with no formal training. This was the era of, I was not a Teach for America core member, but it was the era of Teach for America and no excuses, charter schools and accountability and testing just starting to ramp up. And so uh, I had an English degree from a four-year college and somehow the charter school that hired me was able to hire me with nothing more than that. Um, and I was a young white woman coming from an elite college to a community I had no knowledge of or context for, working predominantly with black and brown students who lived in poverty. And I had zero tools for thinking about that work and the complexities and the opportunities of that work um, and the challenges of it. I think I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I think I went into it with all kinds of unexamined assumptions uh, about who my students were and weren't and who I, who I was and wasn't. And um, over the years, I've had a lot of time to unpack that. But I think that's where I source my work as a teacher educator in particular, is thinking that children deserve more than that. Mm. Even for teachers who might eventually turn out to be really good and who can grow and evolve, as I hope I have done. Um, you know, I, no, no, no kid should have to experience a teacher learning on them in ways that are harmful to them. And I, and I think I did harm. So I, I, I think that's the story I would, I would tell. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that one. So I became aware of your work listening to Jennifer Gonzalez's cult of pedagogy podcast. It's number 208 for people that want to go listen to that. And I'll put a link in the show notes. And as a former middle school teacher who was part of a high-performing interdisciplinary team, I was just super excited. So I'd like to kick this off with a discussion or a definition of deep learning. So what is deep learning and why is it important? Well, we have 400 pages of a, of a book that I co-wrote with my colleague, Almeta on that question. So I, I can't promise to do it justice uh, in a moment, but... Um, I'll start with a little bit of a cop-out answer, but I also think it's always the answer that makes sense to educators, which is what deep learning is not. Um, and I think we all know pretty well what it's not, right? So I think constructing the idea of deeper learning, which is the language that we often use, um, Joel and I in our work, is a reaction to how superficial, shallow, surface level, fast-paced, um, and sort of knowledge-centric in a very uh, low-level sense, a lot of the tasks that kids are asked to engage with in school are um, traditionally. So for educators who know Bloom's taxonomy or any of the taxonomies, right, a very large portion of what often happens in classrooms is at the bottom. It's about recalling factual information, regurgitating what you've been told without really understanding what it might mean or connecting it to broader broader forms um, of knowing in the world. Uh, sometimes it's about applying skills, but often those skills are really narrowly defined and constrained. Um, and so deeper learning in some ways is everything that's not that, right? We, kn we know that knowledge matters. I, I don't want to say that knowledge doesn't matter. It does. But, you know, deep learning is about grappling with big ideas that connect to who you are, who you want to become, what you know about the world, what you don't know about the world. It's about connecting ideas to each other. It's about creating new ideas, constructing um, concepts and, and even real things in the world in the company of others. It's about doing work that matters to you and others. It's about posing questions that you are genuinely curious to answer. I mean, there's many ways to talk about it. I can talk about the framework we've developed around it, but I, I think in general, like 
it's the stuff that happens way too rarely in school that sticks with us when we're older and that really motivates us to continue to mm. engage as learners in a domain that that stuff is all of that is somehow deep or deeper you know and i think it's that engagement piece that's really critical there too i'll i'll offer an example that i hope is is a good one when i was a middle school social studies teacher we teamed with our reading teacher, language arts, and and our science teacher. And we did a big unit around the Holocaust. And I, I think the first time we did it, it was just kind of trying to squish things together and using the Holocaust as an umbrella. But when we started to take it to the next level was when we started to think about why is the Holocaust important for our kids, right? Mm -hmm. We've got these kids, eighth graders in rural Northwest Ohio, why is the Holocaust important? And the two big themes that that stuck out to us was the idea of propaganda and scapegoating. He thought almost, almost every middle school student in some way or another could relate to the concept of scapegoating, right? And then the other piece of that was the, the propaganda on how, how when we're told the same thing over and over again, it starts to distort reality. And, and so it, when we started teaching that unit as around those two things, like the learning just skyrocketed and the engagement of students skyrocketed. And I still run into students today that say, ah, mm -hmm. oh, you know, that experience, I remember that, that transformed me. Yeah, that's a beautiful example. And I, I can hear you doing the thing that a lot of the educators I've learned the most from get to at some point in their, their careers, which is really moving away from the stuff, the raw content, and thinking about like understanding goals and concepts. And more than that, understanding goals and concepts that connect to who kids are, what they experience, maybe the very particular communities or contacts that they they live within that mean something to them, like use, using what you learn in school to make sense of yourself and the world, maybe to take action. I think that's the one piece I would layer additionally on top of what you just said is a lot of the richest work I've seen um, will connect the kind of conceptual exploration you're talking about with some with, with doing something or making something that actually feels like you're, you're sort of leveraging the learning towards something new. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's funny when we were talking before we started recording the podcast, uh, and, and I said, one of the things I really like to do on this show is to end with something that people can go out and execute and do right now, right? Because if if we're taking in new stuff, if we can't go execute, what's what's the point? And yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Jal and I write a lot about sort of the idea of a shift in stance when, when the, the deepest, teach, the most powerful teaching we've seen, teachers tend to have this shift in their stance and the kind of the way they position themselves and their students in relation to the work that moves from knowledge as something inert like there's this stuff that lives in my head or lives in the textbook or lives in the world that i would like to get into your head um to thinking about knowledge as something that is um constantly being negotiated and constructed and that you can create new knowledge you can do you can take action with knowledge which might in turn change how you relate to that knowledge or, or even the knowledge that you thought you had might change as a result of trying to take action on it i mean it's and that, that stance, it, that's a sort of academic way of talking about it. But I think that that's a really big differentiator 
uh, between classrooms where there's a lot of powerful work happening and classrooms where there's not? Is this kind of like, is the teacher seeing themselves as a intermediary between this fixed bunch of stuff that they need to get to the kids? Um, or are they, they and the kids kind of together grappling as maybe expert and novices with a big set of enduring questions and ideas, you know? And, and in this time where we're at right now, you would think that that would be the norm because we are surrounded by those huge questions, those huge um, important issues that that really are pushing in and, and creating a lot of tension, dividing families. So every student is encountering so many of the big issues out there. And I think it would be on, in one hand, it would be easy to, to implement that, but it's not. And I remember listening to you on Jennifer's podcast, talking about the expectation of finding these kind of systems where they had promoted this kind of teaching and learning and not finding it. So can you just talk, tell us a little bit about where we can find, and you said deep, deep learner learning, what's the correct term? Oh, there's no, I mean, everybody okay. talks right. about it in different ways. No, I mean, Joel and I happen to talk about deeper learning, which in some ways I like, because I'm not sure there's an end point, like deepest learning versus mm. deep learning. I mean, we can go round and round, but yeah. Um, but in some ways I like deeper learning because also it sort of gestures toward the norm, which is like deeper, deeper than what? Well, we know what the what sort of is um, intuitively. So yeah, um, where to find it? Well, that's been my my life's work has been in many ways trying to find the pockets where it's happening and the moments where it's happening because even the best teachers can't claim that it always happens for all students all the time. Um, and then trying to understand what are the conditions that enable that and how can we spread those conditions and learn from them when they're when they're in place. So um, you kind of alluded to the fact that there's there are certainly broader conditions of our education system and our socio-political context in the U.S., which are fairly common, although they vary from region to region in some ways. But, you know, we have a policy environment, we have a funding environment, we have a we have various external assessment environments and reporting and all of that that we know often is pulling against the possibility for, for deep learning. So, for example, standardized tests that get a lot of weight in the world. Um, as at least in this country we've constructed them, tend to be very focused on those low-level low skills that we talked about. Um, so kind of basic use of algorithms and math, recognition of patterns, um, not necessarily conceptual understandings, and you know basic comprehension and maybe the beginnings of analysis when you're thinking about reading. So you know, insofar as those assessments have a lot of teeth and drive a lot of things that happen and don't happen in our system, they constrain the the possibilities. But also, there's deeper learning happening everywhere. I said this in um, on the podcast with Jennifer, and I'll shout it from the rooftops, uh, you know, forever. But one of the things that was very delightful after, uh, during this research project I did, after the letdown of realizing there are very few full schools and certainly very few full systems that have made a ton of headway toward consistent deeper learning. There are everywhere classrooms and teachers and moments and teams even like, like yours that actually have gotten quite far um, in their various ways. And one of the, the great tragedies I think is that People are often doing that, where educators are doing that work in isolation, sometimes with peers in their building, but they're often doing it in isolation from each other. And 
there's so many people who are hungry to do things differently and who are aware of how we, the opportunities we're missing when we're not engaging students in really rich work. And insofar as we're able to try to make a difference, they're not able to share that knowledge in ways that's useful to others, except maybe with it, with their own immediate colleagues. So that's, you know, I, that's not my work directly, but I do really admire the work of people doing some of this work around continuous improvement and systems learning and um, networks for school improvement and so forth, where there's a, you know, there's some recognition that our system is so fragmented and it's really um, inhibited the possibility that when people figure something out that they can actually rapidly share and iterate it so that it spreads quickly. It doesn't spread quickly. It often dies with the people that figured it out, you know, when they retire. Yeah. I, I mean, this is all speaking to the way I look at schools, any organization through these different dimensions, right? And that, that a school kind of has, it has its people, it has its purpose, it has its structures, both physical, but also the policy structures, as well as the unstated structures, right? The expectations and the things that we value. And then you have your resources. And, and in, I remember acutely as a teacher feeling like I was spending as much time fighting the structures and the expectations within my school as I was trying to develop these units. And, yeah. and really in the end, it just got so frustrating that I that was one of the big impetus for me to go out and get my doctorate because I thought there's got to be a better way to manage organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think there are lots of internal, there are certainly those external factors like testing, but we don't have as much control over those, but we do have a lot of control, I think, over some of these in, internal structures. So in have you been in schools where it was clear that school leadership had done things to make it easier for teachers to engage in deeper learning. Yes, for sure. Um, I think the role of the school leader is pretty profound. And as you say, of course, it's still like nested inside of a broader ecosystem that they don't always have control over. Um, I can talk about the structural ways, and I, I'd like to talk about the structural ways I've seen school leaders help to to sort of like clear the path, if you will. But I also think there's some sort of more like psychological, sort of emotional things that leaders do um, to make it safe for teachers to, to experiment. So I think to go back to that first part, um, playing as much as you possibly can with the schedule, with space and people and time is actually profoundly important. Like deep, deeper learning does not happen in, you know, 39 minute periods. And when we spend our whole day like hustling secondary students from class to class to class to class to class, often, you know, classes that occur in different departments that aren't talking to each other, mind you, um, you know, through no fault of their own. But it, there's just there's no coherence for them. But also, gosh, it's that's not how people work. I mean, that's not how I work. If I ever have a day where I have to change meetings and my meetings have different topics every 37 minutes, I mean, good luck getting any kind of productive thinking out of me. So I don't know why we expect our young people to do it. I know that the first thing that happens when teachers in traditionally scheduled schools start to experiment with, with deeper forms of inquiry, for example, is they get frustrated with time. Because it's mm -hmm. like, what can you do? I mean, maybe it's 50 minutes, but even that. You know, if you really want to think through an arc of learning where kids have an opportunity to like get into a sort of flow state where they're really in it and 
they're playing around with stuff and they're trying stuff and there's opportunities for discourse and there's opportunities for experimentation and for individual thinking. You can't do that very well when you see them for 49 minutes a day. So Sarah, actually, I, I just want to interject because I like I am nodding my head vigorously. Yeah. I remember so clearly investing so much time on, on an activity and getting it out and the kids digging into it and getting excited and and you feel like, okay, we're almost to that point where the light bulbs are really going to start going off and the bell rings. I know it was yeah. so, so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, and I think there's some creative ways that school leaders can play with it. You know, we still have Carnegie units. We still have seat time requirements, unfortunately, but th th there's some cool stuff that can be done. Um, I work sort of adjacent to a charter school system that has really, I mean, they are an A through G certified public school in the state of California. All of their students graduate with all the requirements to apply to the UC system and so forth. And they figured out how to basically have teachers have half the number of kids for twice the time by playing around with teaming and so forth. So um, there's some real, I mean, that will not automatically create deeper learning, but it's one of those clearing the path things that I think without which you're just going to start bumping up against the limits of what you have. Yeah. And I would, I would include, encourage administrators to have conversations with their teachers about that, right? Like mm -hmm. we can't just assume that we know how to fix the schedule and we know what teachers need. We need to be having conversations yes. with those teachers that are pushing the envelope yes. and getting their ideas and seeing what they say, A, they need, but they also might have some ideas that are helpful and they're coming from that different perspective, which can be valuable. Well, that's, I'm, I'm glad you said that. That's like a, just a much more broadly construed important piece about leadership for deeper learning and almost any other positive thing we want, right? Which is like nothing about us without us. Like do not make decisions for your staff. I'm, I'm up in my soapbox here, having been both a, a leader and a teacher, but being told that something's going to change, where, where it's something big that impacts you is going to change without having been part of the conversation about, or at least invited to the table about why, the why of the change and the implications is, it happens still way too often. Um, but yes, agreed. I think like that co-construction, those shared agreements, the shared buy-in that comes from, hey, we're all going to try this experiment and we all we all think it's worth it, but we also have shared really openly what, what makes us afraid of this change and, um, you know, what we might need from each other and from administration to give it a go. And um, I, I was at a school as a teacher where we did actually move from a traditional seven block schedule to something where we, some complicated thing, but basically twice a week, we got, I think, 100 minutes with our kids um, by doing some creative thing with the schedule. And it solved a lot of, it opened up a lot of doors for a lot of us. I mean, we just adored it. It was just really exciting to have more time to play with our students and even more time to support independent practice in our case. Um, however, there were some very young teachers out of school who struggled with classroom management and oh boy, it created a lot of new problems that, you know, the administration hadn't anticipated because having kids for a hundred minutes is very different than having them for 45. So. You know, I, I think there's that piece around un, like unintended consequences and really thinking through the impact on a system of making a choice, but still, still making it, but making it with a plan for how to support the transition and make it safe for people to try stuff out. And maybe it doesn't go well right away. That's like a chronic thing in schools too. It's like, have a good idea. Okay, we're going to do it. Oh, wait, it didn't go very well, but we've only been doing it for two months. Okay, we're going to roll it back and we'll never be able to do it again because 
you know, now the lore is out there that it was a terrible idea. So I, yeah. I think that's also like, we got to stop doing that. Yeah. And I think that happens when, again, as leaders, we bring the solution and mm-hmm. we just, I think you and I are going to be on the same soapbox <laughs> because we, <laughs> our teachers know what they need. They know where they're frustrated. And if we invest that time, if we're present, if we ask the right questions, they will tell us what they need. And then our job isn't always just to figure out the answer. Our job is, I love what you said, Mm co-construction, right? Because we have perspectives, we have access to resources that we can then work with them to figure Mm -hmm. out what is this going to look like? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to say to that second part, so, you know, changing the schedule is an example of playing with a, a structure, very specific structure. And there are others, you know, you can play with when and how assessments happen. Um, There are schools certainly that are exploring more performance-based or competency-based or portfolio-based assessment systems. I mean, there's lots of things that are, I think, very promising in terms of their alignment with deeper learning goals. Um, But then paired with that and connected to what you're saying, a lot of, when I've talked to school leaders, uh, actually, no, when I've talked to teachers in schools that I think have really gotten farther than a lot of places, in terms of pursuing deep learning, Jal and I would hear over and over again from teachers, we'd say, talk about the role of your school leader in all this. Have they helped? Are they hindering? You know, over and over, they would say, my school leader put themselves between the external world and us. Like they made themselves the buffer. They were the ones who took parent calls or went to the parent meetings to sort of defend or help to rationalize what we're trying here. They, this is a very extreme example, but there are school leaders who have gotten a waiver from the district to make teacher evaluations non-consequential for a year or two when their teachers are really trying something new in order to literally make it safe for them to experiment. Like as a recognition, look, we're going to try project-based learning. Nobody in this building knows what that is going to bring. And, you know, high stakes evaluation is going to make it less safe and supportive for us to try new stuff that might not work right away. So, we're going to, this year is going to be a year when, you know, we're just observing and helping each other. And that, I think, you know, I think that's a really profound way to message the fact that you understand as a leader that change is rocky um, and it's not always linear. And, you know, teachers need to feel supported, actively supported in trying new stuff that's not always going to go well right away. I, I love that point about putting themselves between parents and and teachers. And that wasn't one of the things I was thinking about as we prep for this podcast. But again, going back to my own experience, I know, and I learned more later after I left teaching that there were so many times, I think when, when our administrators stepped in, because we were pushing the envelope and we were pushing our kids hard. And, and some of the, some of the subjects that we were dealing with were not fluffy, comfortable subjects, right? Mm-hmm. And and when you start to dig below the surface on, on things like the Holocaust, um, you're going to find some uncomfortable, you're going to have some uncomfortable decisions um, and conversations. And so that's just so critical. And it's such a powerful role and a natural role, I think, for administrators to play to create that safer space, as you said, are there other things that administrators are doing specifically to create safety for teachers? Hmm. I mean, 
I, I will acknowledge I'm, I interact with lots of school leaders all the time, but my, my bias is always toward like sort of the instructional core, what's happening in the classroom. Um, so that hasn't been the, the lens I always go in with, but I, um, I think there's something very powerful about school leaders modeling and participating in the learning process that teachers are engaging in, right? So Jal and I write a lot about this idea of symmetry between the learning of adults and the culture of adults in schools and the learning of kids um, and the culture of kids and that symmetry has to be there. Um, symmetry often is there anyway when, you know, when the district micromanages the school leaders, school leaders micromanage the teachers and the teachers micromanage the kids. That's not the kind of symmetry we want, but it exists, right? Um, but if you deliberately cultivate symmetry when you're trying to change something as a way to try to accelerate the change process, I think it can be very powerful. So for example, um, I've seen school principals participate in PD together with teachers alongside them, not taking an I know it, you don't, or, you know, I mandate that you do it now, you have to go figure out how, but like we are together here trying to redesign this curriculum, you know, grappling with thorny questions. Um, there is a really wonderful um, leader that I know who was trying to move a private school with a very strong reputation and thus resistant, high resistance to change. She was trying to help that school move toward project-based learning and deeper learning. and. Um, she quite quickly realized that the teachers in this high school were so, had a very high level of like self-efficacy tied to their disciplines. Like the English teachers were English teachers to the core and very proud of their practice. And so trying to like figure out what deeper learning looked like in English was not going to go well with those teachers. So instead what she, what she did is she brought in this like engine, there was no engineering teacher, no engineering curriculum at the school at the time. And she brought in... Uh, facilitation to have the entire school staff, including her and her team, do like a 12-week engineering PD together. Like they were, you know, building bridges with popsicle sticks and, um, you know, tape and glue and who can build the highest tower and why, why does it, you know, why does it work? Anyway, she basically had the intuition, we all need to learn together. We all need to be learning in a domain that none of us feels so attached to that we can't see you know, how practice could change here. And this seems to be like a, a very democratic experience, all of us coming into it with the same level of lack of knowledge, basically. So um, I think there's something really powerful there about symmetry, that like the leader is doing the work alongside the group, the leader is modeling the same kinds of stances and, and sort of engagement that they expect teachers to do. And in some cases, leaders need to be vulnerable and uncertain and clear about not knowing exactly what's happening, right? A lot of leaders, I think, feel pressure to feel like they have all the answers and don't realize that actually, if they can model what it looks like to not have the answers, that opens the door for teachers to feel they can do the same. Sarah, that's such a great point in just model modeling that vulnerability. Yeah, because it's one thing for me to say, oh, yeah, it's okay if you take a risk, but for you then to see me take the risk... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and be okay with that. That that sends a stronger message. I think a couple other things too is as an administrator, creating that reflective space because school is busy. And if you're one of those teachers and you're, you're doing that deeper learning, you're probably grinding pretty hard trying to always push on your practice and make sure that 
that things are planned, you have the activities and, and it's just a lot of work. And, and so creating that space as administrator to say, Hey, Sarah, just talk to me about that lesson. Tell me what went well. And then for me not to give a critique, right. Yep. But for me to yep. create that safe space for you to start processing and for me to just listen mm -hmm. and maybe ask a powerful question or two, but to not judge, just listen and create space for you. I think that's really powerful practice too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really agree. And, and then, yeah, so I'd layer in, I'd, I'd say yes and. We're a big fan in my current place of employment of, of yes and work. Um, so yes and I think sometimes, and I've said this in a number of places and, and I didn't make it up, somebody else I'm sure did, but I, I sometimes think that the work of, reimagining our schools to be places of deep learning is actually kind of like the the biggest challenge is our imagination because we know we have a system that replicates itself in all kinds of ways and we so almost all of us have experienced some version of the system we have in all of its um failures <laughs> and shortcomings and limitations right um and you know and so then we you know in the absence of strong interventions we we know unknowingly replicate many of those same things in our classrooms and so do our colleagues and it's 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 not because we're not brilliant it's not because we don't want more it's because we can't imagine what it would look or feel like or sound like because we haven't been in those spaces um and so sometimes i think there's there's a piece around like anchoring aspirations in something tangible and that's that might mean breaking out of your own school system, right? It, it Like a, a staff where there hasn't been, for example, a lot of project-based, successful project-based learning happening might need to go spend time in project-based learning school or might need some ambassadors from within their school to kind of go be lightning rods and bring back some stuff they're going to try out and then open their classrooms as laboratories. So I think teachers can do a lot more. I think teachers have a lot of brilliance inside them that if we set the right conditions, like you were saying, listening, modeling, making space, moving things around. And then also we need models. We need to know what it looks like when it goes well. And we need to kind of believe it can happen and believe we ourselves can do it. Um, and that for me, that for me is a is kind of the biggest piece is like, how do we, how do we equip people with like a mental model of the, the kinds of classroom, sort of the kinds of classrooms they want to create? Yeah. I Not just that. sort of these like very, um, I think a lot of people, including myself, have very uh, amorphous aspirations for like, oh, I want it to be different than this. I want it to be authentic. Mm. I want it to be, I want my students to be engaged. I want them to care. I want, you know, I want it to be alive. I want to be, you know, like, but, but we don't actually kind of in our brains think like, and what it will look and sound like when that happens is, right. X, you know, right. So back in the nineties, there was a big movement called total quality management which was this whole idea of using data to inform instruction and learning, but also helping kids have agency to helping kids understand their own data and the implications mm -hmm. for the data. And then to have agency to actually make choices about what they needed to learn and how they needed to learn. Mm -hmm. So it's just really, really cool movement. And uh, we were working with a school that had a big grant to implement this. And of course, there's just lots of resistance. 
So, but part of the grant allowed us to take some of the teachers to Pinellas County in Florida, which was really pioneering and just doing amazing stuff. So we took a couple of teachers down. And one of the teachers that we took down was a veteran teacher who was being really resistant. You know, she had, was having success with her traditional practices, didn't see the reason that we needed to do all these changes. So we brought her with us as well. And the things that those teachers saw were things that they could not have imagined. They mm -hmm. had to see them. Mm -hmm. And once they saw them, they just, you could see the them light up with excitement. Oh, this is what we're talking about. So yeah, I think it's a um, really important if we want people to, to embrace this work, they have to know what it looks like and sounds like because a lot of teachers may have never experienced that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's really what I was trying to get at. And and by the way, that that uh, <laughs> that thing from the 90s sounds very familiar. Like that's another thing that happens, I think, is like, you know, these good ideas come and go and get rebranded and they fall out of favor and then somebody comes up with them again. And um, yeah, I think I think one of the things actually this goes back to school leadership. Um, you know, we talk about having relational trust in schools and relational trust between students and teachers and between teachers and administrators. And that's all well and good. And, we, you know, relationships are great. But I also think, and, you know, a lot of sociologists who have studied school have remarked on this, starting with like Daniel Lordy in the 80s. But our the schools that we have, the, the culture, overwhelming culture of our schools is one of immense privacy, like teachers closing their doors and then they do their thing. And what happens between them and their kids is, you know, it's mainly just their own. Um, and all, literally all of the schools I've seen, and they range greatly in how they're organized and whether they're big or small and charter or district public and so forth. Um, all of the schools I've seen that are really making some headway have disrupted that and have built a culture or rebuilt a culture where teachers are in and out of each other's classrooms frequently not, you know, just to borrow tape or whatever, but to like actually watch each other teach, watch their own students at work in a different, under different conditions, you know, like purposeful observations, um, not just, oh, I'm desperate, can I just come see you do this thing, which I think does happen somewhat regularly in schools, but like real norms of transparency um, and sort of like a breaking down of that classroom wall boundary um, so that you see each other at work, practices flow from classrooms to to others quite easily and I think it helps to address what you're saying and you know to a point where if somebody's figured something out for example about positive discipline or whatever you want to name like you actually see it in action um, and when everybody's talking about it it starts to give you a sense of what it might look and sound like and you might experiment with it yourself and so forth and I think that is it's an underrated like it's not that hard technically right teachers tend to have a prep at least one you know, hypothetically, they could go into lots of classrooms on their prep, although God knows teachers have other things to do on their prep. But, um, you know, you don't have to change the schedule, for example, to to enable teachers to start to see each other at work more often. I mean, you can just change the culture and kind of layer it into some of the change work that you might be doing. So another saying that came out of the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, is that isolation is the enemy of improvement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And isolation occurs in schools at multiple levels, not just, yeah. you know, teachers closing the door, teachers not getting into other classrooms, 
but it just so many levels, it can be so isolating. And one of the things that the, the light bulb that just went off for me that I will suggest is that if people go back and really think about what you and I have been talking about, one of the most powerful ways that school administrators can help teachers to embrace deeper learning is to create opportunities for teachers themselves as professionals to engage in deeper yes. learning. Like yeah. we can build that's, that's a school. Symmetry. One more time. Yep. We can build a school that supports that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's like the, the sort of symmetry at its most essential is like, or to be sort of more obnoxious about it, asymmetry at its most essential is like administrators, you know, running a PD or hiring a consultant to run a PD on inquiry-based learning or whatever you want to call it. And teachers are sitting passively for two hours while somebody presents to them, right? Like literally, you know, and te teachers themselves, te teachers are no dummies. They're some of the smartest people I've ever encountered for the, for the most part. So, you know, they get it. The irony is not lost on them. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think powerful PD has got to deliberately, um, intentionally enact the values and the actual routines and processes that you want teachers to then bring into that classrooms. Um, and we do that, the program I run, or the program I've um, built and, and been running for the last six years, that's our big bet is walking our talk and very specifically, I mean, uh, in sort of like less tangible ways, but also literally like, you know, how we're gonna do, we're gonna think about the value of visible thinking routines and we're going to do them ourselves. And then we're going to think about what came up when we did them. And then we're gonna think about what it looks like to do them with the age group that you work with in your discipline. And then we're going to practice doing them with each other. And then we're gonna go do them and take a video and then we're gonna come back and then we're gonna do it again. I mean, it's, you know, just constantly trying to engage our teachers as learners in the kinds of experiences we want them to then facilitate and design for their young people and then giving them time to think about the transfer there. Next time I have you on the show, <laughs> I want to really interrogate this idea of how we create deeper learning opportunities for teachers within into the structures of the school day. I think that I think that's a whole show on its own. I have so many ideas running through my head. Like how do, how do we make your professional development? No, how do we help you make your professional mm -hmm. development right deeper? And what does that mm -hmm. look like for teachers? And I think that would be a really exciting show for us to do. Mm -hmm. I'm down for it. All right, awesome. So I want to start to wrap this up and I have two important questions for you. And the first one is what part of your own leadership are you trying to get better at? Hmm. That's a great question. I think that I'm, this is something that I'm, I've been aware of for a long time, but have been thinking about more um, consciously recently. I move very, very fast. Um, you know, I am very, very short for those of you not, well, you can't even see it because you just see my head, but I'm five foot one. I'm a small person, but I have always literally moved very fast. Like, you know, people are like, you're the smallest, fastest walker I've ever seen. And I do come from the East Coast. So it's, you know, to be fair, that's who we are. But but I also am a really fast processor. And um, my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly 
thinking five steps ahead of what I'm saying. And it's actually too fast uh, in a lot of cases. I think it, I lose opportunities to reflect deeply and to listen and be fully present because I'm just sort of always processing. Um, it, it, you know, it's one of those things for all of us, everybody in the world, and especially folks in positions of leadership, our strengths are also our challenges, right? So it's not that being fast is a bad thing all the time. But I recognize that um, moving that fast and talking that fast and jumping to conclusions that fast for me does not always serve me, especially when I'm working with teachers, young teachers who are, they process differently. Um, they, they are thoughtful and deliberate and they need time for things to settle. It has absolutely nothing to do with raw intelligence. Um, I hope that's very, very clear. And our stew, we have a distribution of processing in terms of our the young people we serve as well, right? Like we also, we have students in our classrooms who are slow, thoughtful, deliberate thinkers and who need more time. And we have students who are move really, really fast and are always ready for the next thing and they need to be asked to slow down. So I, as a leader, I think a lot about that. Like when do I slow myself down? When do I make sure I'm quieting my brain so I can be fully present for others, even if I'm tempted to jump ahead 17 steps, you know? And then also, when do I lean into the fact that moving fast sometimes is useful in a, a you know, fast-paced environment and job and so forth? So that's something I've thought about. And I think it's um, tied, when we talk about white supremacy culture, we talk about, I think, our normative culture in the U.S., dominant culture in the U.S. tends to equate speed with intelligence. How fast you can complete a test is one proxy for, you know, how smart are you? And that's that's BS, but it, it is layer, it's sort of deeply ingrained in how we think about the world. So um, I'm trying to like undo some of that and then also counteract my own instincts, you know, which all of us as leaders have to do, I think. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I think there are a lot of people out there that are going to be thinking about that for themselves. Before we go, is there anything else that you'd, oh, I'm skipping questions. If listeners could take away just one thing from today's podcast. So assistant principals are going to walk out of this podcast with one thing in mind when they go into school tomorrow, what should that be? That's a hard one. I think I would go with what you were raising as a topic for an entire podcast, but the idea of like, walk your talk, like really, you know, if what you hope for your school community has to do with everybody being able to be more vulnerable with each other, then do it, be vulnerable, like take the leap. And if, if what you're working on with your community is around saying the thing, not dancing around issues, like practice direct communication, you know, and if what you care about is um, grappling deeply with things before you come to conclusions, then make the space and the time and make it visible that you're doing that too. I mean, I just, I think there's immense power in thinking hard about enacting the values that you seek within your own work, not just like, you know, making sure that they show up at your board meetings and they make it onto your strategic plan or whatnot, which matters as well. I don't, that's, that's important too. But just like living the values is so important. Wow. Thank you, Sarah. Is there anything else you want to share with listeners before we go? Um, well, I say this in the book, but I think it's worth saying again. Because in some ways, you know, in some ways I'm very critical of what happens in schools. I want it to be better for, for kids and for adults too, frankly. 
Um, but on the other hand, the vast majority of teachers I've ever met, and at this point, I have met a lot of teachers at all different stages of their careers all over the country, all different types of schools. Like teachers want to do right by their kids. Like they really do. Don't, I mean, you know, the tropes about lazy teachers that are just, you know, reading the newspapers in their desks. Maybe there's a few of them out there. It is a vanishingly small um, number compared to the, the folks who I actually think really are given the right conditions and supports would relish opportunities to grow um, in their practice and want, I mean, a lot of teachers we talk to, they're, they would, they're desperate to do deeper learning. Um, and, and it's knowing how and what and feeling ready to do it and knowing what you're heading for and having company in, in the journey there and, you know, all the things we've talked about. So I just, I think it's really important to recognize the assets that are teachers who want their kids to be deeply engaged and affirmed in school um, and just to you know, for a number of reasons, almost overdetermined reasons, um, are thwarted in doing that as well as they'd like to. Thank you for that. I, I think one of the most powerful shifts we could make as leaders is to get out of the mindset that we need to pull teachers or push teachers forward and to understand what we need to do is tear down the barriers to growth and make it easier for them to do the things that they naturally want to do. Mm -hmm. so we've got to take down the barriers and become partners. We don't need to be the pushers. We don't need to be the drivers. Mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's beautifully said. Mm. So Sarah, tell where's the best place that people can find your book and, and learn more about you and the work that you're doing and maybe reach out and connect. Uh, well, my book is called, my and Dolmet's co-authored book is called In Search of Deeper Learning. Um, you can find it on Amazon. I would strongly encourage you to go to your independent local bookstore and buy it there. Ask them to order it instead. Um, I know that's sometimes easier said than done. And um, I'm actually in a job transition right now. So that I am going to be joining the faculty of UC San Diego's education department. Um, and so actually the best way to reach me is at my email there. It's S-A-Fine, softfine, um, at ucsd.edu. Okay, excellent. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Sarah, thank you so much. This has been great. My it's pleasure. been every bit as much fun as I was hoping it would be. Awesome. Well, you ask great questions, so I appreciate the conversation. Okay, and we will have you back on soon to really look at how great. we support the teachers in that. All right. Awesome. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Take Bye. care. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this thoughtful conversation on deeper learning. I'd like to emphasize three things. First, find the teachers who are already pushing the envelope and either doing or working towards doing deeper learning in their classrooms. Begin creating space to help them reflect on their own teaching. Listen closely and begin asking questions about their aspirations and about the barriers they face. Second, walk your talk and begin modeling deeper learning yourself by being vulnerable and asking deeper questions, both of yourself and of others. And third, trust your teachers. Think about what it looks like to let them lead in their own professional growth. Well, 
Thank you for including me on your professional growth journey, on your leadership journey. I look forward to seeing you again on Friday when we recap this week's daily emails. I'm Frederick Buskey, and thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Assistant Principal Podcast. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Cheers. <laughs>